Father in heaven, we give you great praise today for your goodness toward us. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth. That these things that you have made declare your glory. The earth is full of the manifestation of your creative power. The beauty and the wonder and the vastness, the intricacies and the way things fit together and so many other parts all point to you. But God, nothing else in all of creation has been said to be made in your image but people. And it's wonderful and humbling. Lord, we come here not as perfect or spotless, but we come as the sin-ravaged and the burdened, the broken, the distracted, the weak, the tired. Wherever we are this morning, God, you have made this appointment for us. And so would you take your word and the power of the Holy Spirit and bring it to bear on each one of us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Hearts that are made soft by your grace. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away. But your word will never pass away. So, Lord, today would you speak? God of glory, speak. Heavenly Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'm getting ready to date myself on my cultural reference. Okay? Michael Keaton will always be Batman. So that was my... <laughs> it's the first one of the day. Uh, that was my introduction to Batman. It was the Michael Keaton... Uh, if you guys remember, if you don't, it's not a huge deal. I'm sorry for you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, that, uh, Mike, you know, Michael Keaton is Batman and Jack Nicholson was Joker. And there was this moment in the movie and it's going to tie, it applies, everything hopefully applies. So you can, if you don't, this, whatever, if you need to check out for a second. Okay. Uh, this moment in the movie where they, I don't, I don't remember the circumstances, but they have this encounter, um, Jack Nicholson and all his goons come into like an art museum. You remember this? Okay. And he's got a flower on his lapel that shoots some sort of acid or something. And the Joker himself is physically, um, he has become misfigured by some accident, something that's happened to him. And from his, what's happened to him, what he suffered, his, his uh, external ugliness, which for the Joker was actually internal ugliness, Manifest in the fact that he goes throughout this museum and all of the paintings and he begins to squirt 
the acid on the paintings. You know what it does to the painting? Does, it, does the painting survive? No, it, it malforms it. The canvas is there, the, the paint and some of the colors are there, but it all begins to be mutated and ugly, transformed into something that the artist did not paint. But this misfigurement, this whatever he had suffered, burst out of him in a need to destroy. If you remember last week, I kind of introduced this image to you from a guy named, I just want to say it again, uh, Willemus or Willemus Abrockel. Um, you could just say Brockel. Or you could say WB if you guys are tight. Um, it's a joke. It's okay. But he talked about the image of God and how you think about the image of God. Remember, we have the, the form. I mean, the basis, the form, and the consequence. The basis is that we are made immortal. We're made spiritual. We're made rational. That's the basis. That's the the canvas of the painting. But the form of the image of God that is impressed or, if you will, painted upon the canvas. That's knowledge and particularly knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's world. It's righteousness, right relationship. Moral uprightness. And then holiness, which was a distinction from creation and a nearness to God. Holiness being this participation in the life that God gives and intends to give. And then the consequence, according to Brockle, was dominion. That all of these components, the form, the canvas... Excuse me, the basis, the canvas, the form, the painting was meant to do something in the world. Go forth and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That God created Adam and Eve, God created humanity with this great capacity for dominion. Matched with a form, an image, a painting, a representation, an analogy of the life of God to demonstrate His goodness and to exercise His goodness. All upon the scaffolding, upon the canvas of an immortal soul, of a rational mind, and of a spiritual being. Here's the, maybe the nuts and bolts of how you might understand the image of God. The canvas is something that philosophers have noticed for a long time. You can go back to Aristotle, and Aristotle regards humans as rational animals. He picks up that idea that we're made for rationality, and so he says we're rational animals. Animals, he misses out on the the spiritual and the holy and the righteous. He misses out on the form, 
while trying to represent the basis. says, or rational. Even Alexander Hamilton, who is one of our founding fathers, you may know him by means of a play. The Hamilton, is that what that's called? A show? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not cool like that. The Hamilton, right? So Alexander Hamilton said that uh, it's not so much that man is a reasonable animal, but a reasoning animal. Because this is what happens. The canvas remains. There is something that is um, that you cannot avoid about the nature of who you are. You cannot avoid that you are made with an immortal soul. Despite your attempts to stamp that down, despite our culture's attempts to stamp that down, you don't live like you just die and then that's it. Nobody does because it's an untenable, it's an unlivable. An immortal soul teaches us, impresses upon us in a way that we cannot avoid that this life is not all there is. And so there's something deep within us that longs for something more. I mean, just look at the history of humanity In all of the cultures, in all of the places, in all of the continents, in all of the generations, men and women have been raging against the fear of death. You could point out all of the philosophical schools. You could point out all the the world religions. You You could even point out the places where politics and ideology have so wed as to breed atheistic states like North Korea and China, there is still this drive to avoid death. I mean, even consider, I don't know if you can still do it. It's been a long time since I was able to go to China. China's changed. But why on earth, why on earth would communist countries... Atheistic countries, materialistic countries, naturalistic countries take their former heads of state and mummify them. You don't understand what they, that they, for years and years and years, the Soviet Union had Lenin, his body, kept in state. For years and years and years, they had, later on, they had Stalin on display. Somehow trying to communicate that though they are dead, they still live. And to this day, I'm assuming used to be able to go in, I don't know. There in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, you you could line up, get your yellow rose, line up, walk into the, there's only a certain amount of time during the day. You walk in and you could be about from me to the sound booth. To Mao's body. Mao Zedong, who is the author of the Cultural Revolution, really established. uh, Chairman Mao established the Chinese Communist Party. They have his body there. Painted with makeup, dressed nicely. And they have to lower it down into what I assume is a giant refrigerator. For so many hours a day before they bring it back up. 
that even in a materialistic, naturalistic worldview, which they're trying to drive home upon, they are driving home to their people, there's something unavoidable. That there's no way that death could be the end for Mal. There's no way that death could be the end for Lenin or for Stalin. Or he could look and go around the world and look at all the monuments that people build. You could go down to the makeup store and look at all the ways we try to defy aging. Go to GNC or the Healthy Rabbit or wherever else you get your healthy food, right? The ways that we try to stave off death point something out to you. That immortality is baked into your bones and into your soul. That you're immortal, that you're spiritual. That people today, despite the raging of atheistic philosophies and new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchin, who has departed this life. Spirituality in the West, people think, oh, everybody is turning away from the from faith and things in the United States and in Western Europe. Yes, they're turning away from the gospel. They're turning away from the church. But they're not turning away from spirituality. That there's something empty and barren. And let's say you have all sorts of new age about an atheistic philosophy, an atheistic look at life. And so there's all these new age spiritualities that emerge. You know, people... I'm not going to chase down that rabbit, but it still shows up. You can you find it on your block, I promise you. Not that they're looking at crystals, but there's some sort of spiritual awareness that they're trying to cook up. Even down here, down, um, down two notch, right after the turn for Sand Hills, we have our very own psychic. Do you know this? Don't you dare go in there. <laughs> but there's an, a, a tacit acknowledgement that we're spiritual, that there's something more to us than meat and bones. And obviously, rational. Our culture loves to say how rational we are while wrapping our arms around the most irrational positions on men and women and the nature of gender. That there's something unavoidable about the basis. But the basis, the canvas remains. But what is being painted upon that canvas? Certainly not the knowledge of God, the intimacy with God, not righteousness, moral uprightness before God, not holiness. That it's here. It is here that you see corruption. That there is a... There is a twisting that God made man upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says. But he has pursued, sought out many schemes. There's an unavoidable nature about who we are. But the way that manifests in sin is that we take what God has made us and we begin to build something that dishonors him upon it. And so there's this brutal Brutal thing that's happening in fallen men and women. People who are still dead in their sins and trespasses. That they simultaneously continue to bear the image of God while also bearing 
the image of the father of lies. Both are true. It's very clear, even after Noah, in Noah, I mean Noah, in Genesis 9, 6, where God's talking about the penalty for murder, which is capital punishment. It says that whoever takes man's life, his life will be taken because man is made in the likeness of God. That even after sin enters in, the image of God is still there. And yet Jesus is able to say to the, to the Pharisees and those who are listening in John chapter 8, that you are of your father, the devil. You don't understand what I'm saying because you're not of God. You need to be able to have this distinction in place. That the image of God is up and running in people, but so is the image of Satan. I'm going to let that marinate. That's, that's heavy. Because we want to say, everybody's made in the image of God. You're lovely and beautiful. But if you don't ever get to the other half of it, all your image of God is going to be a big pat on the back to people who are marring the canvas that God has made. Now, please understand, as just for nuance's sake, the imagery of canvas and painting is an imperfect illustration about the corruption of sin. The corruption of sin, when men and women, dove, when Adam and Eve dove into sin, rebelled against God, chose to be their own kings or queens, chose to rebel against His law and be their own lawmakers and law keepers, the corruption drove down deep so that there is a total corruption. Every component of life is touched by sin. So you have this simultaneous image of God, image of the father of lies. C.S. Lewis makes this great point in Mere Christianity, where he says that everyone you meet, everyone you meet is immortal. And they're either, and this is the Jacob paraphrase, they're either being transformed into the most beautiful being, more beautiful being than you could even imagine, or into the foulest ghoul of hell beyond imagination. Everyone you meet, everyone is either going to live into the image that God has, and really, the, as we'll talk about in just a second, Lord willing, uh, the re-image that we have in Jesus, or they're being conformed into the image of the father of lies. And the choice before you is which way will your life lead? There is very much this morning, and in fact every morning you wake up, there's very much a choose you this day moment. Will you choose life and blessing? Will you choose death and the curse? Which will you choose? Because Adam and Eve, they choose. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw, this is after she has been beguiled, tempted by the serpent that we know is Satan. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes 
And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And in this moment, that particular definite command of God that was given to them in the garden. You can have everything, just not this. They said we would rather have this rather than everything. And they chose that. And because of that, their relationship with God was severed. Their relationship with each other was corrupted. Their relationship with the world, the creation, cursed is the ground because of you, God says to Adam. You see the dysfunction, the brokenness, the the depravity, the, the corruption emanating out in concentric circles from Adam and Eve into all of creation. And not, all, not just all of creation, but to every generation. That you weren't born. As John Locke said, he said that we were born with a tabula rasa, with a blank slate, that we needed it to be impressed upon and written upon. You were not born spiritually, morally neutral. David said in Psalm 51 that I was conceived in sin. That all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us have suffered and inherited that sinful nature bent away from God. And in fact, Paul goes so far to say in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, that in Adam all sinned. That there's something there about we, we participated because Adam was our head. He represented us. He represented all of humanity in the garden. And because he represented us and failed, his failure, his sin, and even somehow his guilt has rolled down to every generation. You do not stand morally neutral. You do not stand on your own two feet before God, but you are born bent away. Because the curse of sin has rolled through every generation into all parts of the world. We saw Adam and Eve sin. We see this imputed sin. This, the Adam is our, what you call a federal head. He's our representative head. And because he sinned, death entered in. We sin, death is ours too. And before you plead, that's not fair. I'm just going to say, I'm going to quote one scripture. Who are you, O man? From Romans chapter 9. But then I will also say, if you were in the garden, you wouldn't have done any better. With all of the advantages that Adam had, he did not have this nature. He did not have this bent away from God. He had that original righteousness, but he had the capability to fall, and he fell. He and Eve together fell. But not only is the guilt something that is given to us, it is something that is actualized by us in the fact that we're not just, we haven't just inherited this, but we have perpetrated this. 
We have perpetrated the deformation of God's image. Upon the canvas of our lives and of our souls and of our minds, we have sought out the schemes. We have sought out the rebellions. We have sought out to be our own kings and queens. We have done the same and even worse. Romans 3.23. Some of you should know it. Like pull that out of the Romans Road checkbook, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've inherited it and you've done it. You have this, this crushing weight of sin that not only is condemning you before God, but it's corrupting everything you ought to be. All the ways that you're meant to display the wonder and beauty, beauty of God is being bent away so that God should be getting the glory from your life. He should be getting Getting all the praise for the, the beauty and the righteousness and the holiness and the delight that is found in you. But because that we have inherited this guilt, we've inherited this sin, and we've perpetrated ourselves, we step more and more looking like the ghouls of hell rather than the children of glory. All have sinned. Fall short. Job fifteen fourteen. What is man... That he could be pure, or who, or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. So we stand. We live corrupted and condemned, left to our own. Bearing still the canvas of the image of God, which ought to have been the, the, the foundation of all our delight that we're made to enjoy God in a certain way. But because we're made with immortality, with spirituality, with rationality, those things now in the hands of sin have so gripped us that they will condemn us. But because we're made for immortality, we will bear outside of Christ and his deliverance. We will bear the condemnation of sin for eternity. Because we're made of spiritual beings, we will suffer if we do not repent and come to Jesus when this body dies, the spirit lives. And we will be aware, rational, pleading. As we weep and teeth gnash, pleading. Do not run over how sin deforms us. And because sin deforms us, we wish to deform and we do it in ways that we don't even know. We do it in our relationships. We do it in creation. We do it in our workplaces. We do it in our churches. We do it in our lives. Because ultimately, you become like what you worship. And as you pursue more corruption, as you pursue more sin, you might be thinking, oh, there's... 
This feels good. There's so much right here. This checks all the boxes within myself. And you are treading further and further and further into the likeness of your father, the devil. This is the condemnation and the corruption of sin. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in John chapter 8. The psalmist does it clearly in Psalm 115. He he says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Beware you who is rebelling against God. You who is running from the maker of the heavens and the earth. You who are seeking to be, to make it your way as my way, right? Frank Sinatra, another dated cultural reference maybe applies to some of you. Those who make them become like them. You become like that which you worship. What is most prized by you? What does your life say? What do your words say? What does your bank account say? What would those who see you at home say? What would those who see you in your workplace say? What would be the resounding testimony of your life? What we need... What you need is not more of you. You need to forsake the idea. As you might beginning, you might be feeling that bite of saying, what is my life like right now? If we were to stop right here and I say, now go find the answers. What this world would tell you is something along the lines of follow your heart. You do you. What makes you happy? What makes you full? This bent inward. And if you go looking to solve your problems, your problems with God, your problems with other people, simply continuing in the rebellion against God, ignoring Him, And looking into your own heart and soul, saying, I've got to fix this. What you're doing is you're stepping into a house of mirrors. Where it will distort and lie to you. Until all you know is distortion and lies. So deceived by the adversary. Has to be almost sealed in sin. No, dear one, what you need comes from outside of you. You need the one who, because the children partook of flesh and blood, he partook of the same, that he might deliver them from the power of him who has 
the power of death, that is the devil. That Christ took on flesh. The eternal Son of God took on a human nature, not corrupt. Not bearing the guilt of Adam. Not bent away from God. But he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he dwelt among us to rescue. He rescues us. And what you need, you need the cleansing, as we talked about last week. You need the cleansing that is offered only through the blood of Christ. In him we have redemption, the buying back through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins takes that canvas, canvas that has itself become kind of janky, kind of, kind of off. He sets it right and he cleanses it. You desperately need for your corruption to be washed away. All the ways that you've rebelled against God. All the ways that you've sought to be your own king or queen. All the ways that you've, you've tried to fix things and only made things worse because you're relying upon yourself. All the ways that you've centered this life upon you. You need that removed and the guilt that it carries removed. You need the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 103 says that he, he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's not all you need. Because if the canvas is clean, what's missing? It's not a rhetoric. What's missing? The picture, the painting. You need to image. You need to display. Have you considered, I mean, go this afternoon, read Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, just like the rest. Children of wrath, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who's Satan. This was the status of you outside of Jesus. And what does God do? But God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he, he loves us. Made us alive together with Christ. Amen. Seated us with Christ. Raised us with Christ. Seated us with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Not by works so that no one may boast. That you need to go from death to life. And that is only by the power of God. You need to bring you from spiritual death into spiritual life. The power that it takes is the same power that was exercised when God said, let there be light. You need spiritual resurrection. But notice how that passage in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 ends. Having received the grace of God. Having been raised with Jesus, and notice that all of our benefits are because of our union to Jesus. That should give you a hope and assurance. Raised with Him, forgiven in Him. What does Ephesians 2.10 say? This is Sarah's favorite verse, so I shouldn't mess it up. For we are His Workmanship. Created 
in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see it? Do you see it? The canvas is straightened out. It's cleansed. We're connected to Christ. And now in Jesus, we who are all of those awful things I was just saying, turning into ghouls of hell, shaking our fists to heaven, turning into little demons running around, bearing the image of the father of lies, and God does something in our lives. By the power of God, He makes us alive. He makes us alive with the life of Christ. And as He makes us alive with the life of Christ, we now become the very masterpiece, the workmanship of God. The poema, where we get the word poem, there in Ephesians chapter 2.10. So that God begins to rework the image. Restoring and even accelerating and great, more greatly displaying all that he began to do. So you need, not only do you need forgiveness and cleansing, but you need to be conformed. You need to be reformed. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, This is after the fantastic promise that God's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That Christian, this is your predestined end. This is the greatest good that God would have for you is that you would look like Jesus. You don't need to find You don't need to go back to the old image, but you need the new image of of the Son of God displayed in you. Be predestined to... Uh, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that all of this life that Christ has accomplished, that God has this intention, this destiny for you, Christian, that you would be Christ-like. And here is the, the basis of the image of God. The canvas is restored, but then the form is being restored. The form of knowledge, righteousness, holiness, Remember, John 14, 6, we just sang it. For Christ is I am, he says, the way, the truth, and the life. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So we're to put on this new image. We can't have righteousness. We can't have the original righteousness of Adam. How will we then display? What will the picture be? It must be the righteousness of Christ. The true righteousness is that His righteousness, His obedience, His active obedience in His life, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, perfectly living out the will of God, Surrendering his life and his passive obedience at the cross is attributed to your account. 
This is how you are counted righteous before God. Stamp it. This is under fire in the church in ridiculous ways. But you are counted righteous by the grace of God. Because you're unioned with Jesus, you're brought to faith in Christ. And by the instrument of faith in Jesus, God gives you, imputes to you, accounts to your bank account, so to speak, His righteousness. So you're not left trying to build up a righteousness of your own. You're certainly not left trying to infuse righteousness through a banquet of sacraments like the Roman Catholic Church would tell you. You are righteous in Jesus. It is. Praise God. This is sort of recreated in true righteousness and true holiness. That we're truly set apart in the Son of God. That he who sanctifies and he who's sanctified have the same Father, the writer of Hebrews says. That we come from God because he's saved us, he's justified us, but he's also sanctifying us. He's still painting the picture, so to speak. So we're counted righteous, but we're being conformed to the image of God. We're being renewed in true righteousness and holiness. We need to put on the new self, Paul says in Colossians 3.10, which is being renewed in in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see knowledge. You see how in Christ... The basis is there. The basis is is unavoidable. Immortality, spirituality, rationality. But Christ is restoring to us the true form of the image of God. In knowledge, righteousness, holiness. Dear one, you cannot live out truly, fully the image of God outside of Christ. You will continue to bear this Two-headed witness that you're made by God and yet you're chasing after and beguiled by still Satan himself. That Christ now where Adam had represented us and we all fell and died in sin. Christ has represented us so that everyone who is in Jesus would live. Paul gets into this Romans 5, and I'm not going to preach that because that'll be another 45 minutes. But here's your hope, your desperate need, your desperate need. Some of you, you see what I'm talking about. You feel this tension that you bear the marks, this basis, this canvas of the image of God, but you've been living your life trying to scrub away the knowledge of him, the righteousness, holiness, trying to establish something on you, of your own in rebellion against God. The change that needs to happen today is that you call out to Christ to forgive you of your sins. And to begin doing in you this new, renewed work. Some of you, God is, you feel like God's cleansed the, the canvas. You prayed that prayer. You got baptized, you really meant it. And you've just been kind of muddling your way through the rest of the time. Not really pursuing Christ. Not really seeking to live out Christ's likeness. Not seeking true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Maybe it's time for you to 
say, I need to display Jesus. And because this is the thing about holiness, about being set apart to be with God, that holiness is true happiness. Some of you, others, you've you've got one foot in one and one foot in the other, it feels like. I'm not just doing my stretches right here. You can't see it behind the Buick here. But you've got one foot in the image of God, trying to live out who God might have for you. And the other foot, you you can't leave behind some of your sin. You can't leave behind some of the the applause of the world. You just you're stuck here. As Elijah, Elijah said, not Elijah, Elijah said to the prophet, to the people of Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. You cannot simultaneously grow into the image of Christ and grow into the image of Satan. What part does Christ have with Belial? The Apostle Paul says, what part? So choose today by God's grace. Choose. Life, Christ, Christ likeness, glory to come. Sin, rebellion, hell to come. Father, We thank you for your word and the treasures and the riches that are before us. We praise you, O Lord, that you created man upright. You created humanity upright, bearing immortality and rationality, spirituality, but also bearing these relational qualities of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And Lord, we confess that as Adam and Eve did and as every generation since has pursued various schemes of rebellion and sin, we ourselves have been guilty. We have received guilt and we have piled up our guilt. Lord, if there are some here who see that for the first time, that they are guilty before you, corrupted and condemned but you awaken them to see that you are the one who justifies the ungodly that if they would come to Christ he will cleanse he will forgive he will renew would you turn their hearts to you O God I pray O Lord as some who are divided in opinion even this week, it'll, it'll appear from the outside looking in like two separate lives, like split personalities. God, would you give them the grace to resolutely, because of the change that has been wrought by your Holy Spirit, to resolutely change and turn to Christ and forsake all others. Would you grow us, would you grow your church into the image of Jesus, displaying the beauty, the wonder, the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness 
of Christ ever and ever more. Until one day, one day the mortal will be swallowed up with immortality. And the perishable will be swallowed up with life. We look to you, O God. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.